Emily. Uh, I have an amazing wife who helps me remember stuff like that. So here I am. Otherwise, it would have been awfully quiet right about now. Uh, great to have you here. Um, this week, as, as I was just thinking about and, and, and just processing this idea of God's design for marriage, which is our topic today, found myself standing in the checkout line of HEB, and what do we all do? We look at the magazines, right? And on the cover of Cosmopolitan Magazine is Hilary Duff. Now, most of you know she is really a powerful force in pop culture. She's had several top chart-topping hits in the music industry. She's been on several very popular television shows. She's been in dozens and dozens of movies as, as a star actress. And the reason she was on the cover of Cosmopolitan Magazine is because she was announcing her divorce from Mike Cromie, the man that she'd been married to for six years. And since I was processing this idea of marriage and God's design for a marriage, I decided to, I bought the, the magazine and I brought it home and I read it. And I was really struck by something Hillary said, and I want to read that to you. This was a quote that, that I think was the takeaway quote from, from the article. Duff stated, I don't want to sound bitter, but I don't know if people are meant to be together forever. A marriage of 20 years the accomplishment of that must feel really great, but there are huge sacrifices. I just want to be sure to always fight for happiness because happiness is more important than commitment. Well, there you have it. We've heard from Hillary. You're dismissed. No, I'm just kidding. Um, normally, I might say, what difference does it make what Hillary Duff says? I mean, she's not a psychologist. She doesn't have training in psychology. She's not a marriage specialist. She's just this pop culture icon. And, and I want to suggest to you that it is important what she says because she's just one drop in this stream, in this current that we call culture. And if you, whether or not you realize it, Culture exerts a powerful force on each and every one of us. And this is really what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he wrote to the church at Ephesus. And, and I'm sorry, I forgot to make a slide, but if, if you have your devices, your Bibles with you, open it up to Ephesians 6.12. This is a, a critically important verse for us to understand the reality of this world. Because Paul wrote these words. He said, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the powers of these dark world, the rulers, the authorities, he's not talking about government authorities that are destroying marriages, is he? He's not talking about some law that says you have to divorce. He's talking about these invisible forces that exert a power on us. And, and what he says is, our battle is not against flesh and blood. And, and let me suggest something. There, sadly, in my time here at Rock Hills, we've seen divorces happen. And, and let me tell you what doesn't usually cause a divorce. If some thug showed up at your door and said, you know what, I'm going to punch you unless you divorce your husband and your wife. 
Now, of course, we'd, we'd try to close the door. We'd try to get a uh, person's obviously insane. We'd call the police. We'd do all those things. But let, let's say they did haul off and punch you. Whether you're a man or a woman, I don't think your response would be, oh, well, since that happened, I'm going to divorce my spouse. Paul is saying that there are forces in this world that aren't flesh and blood forces. You see, Satan is too smart for that. He's too clever. The, the power of evil in this world is too clever to appear to us as flesh and blood and start bludgeoning, bludgeoning us to try to get us to divorce. So Satan and, and the forces of evil have slowly worked their way through our culture until there's this almost tidal wave, this current that says, why stay married? Come on, it's more important to be happy than stay committed. If you're not happy, just get a divorce. And so that is one of the many reasons, folks, why it is so critical, why it's so important that you come to church each and every Sunday. What, what are we going to do to exert pressure against those kinds of forces? And what I want to tell you is there is a force that can counteract that. There is something that can lay the schemes of Satan and the forces of evil, lay them bare, that, that will expose them for the falsehood and for the lies and the deception they are. And that is the word of God. And that is why we're going to hear from the word of God each and every week here at Rock Hills. And why today... As we discuss God's design for marriage, we're not going to discuss some marriage expert or what Hillary Duff thinks. We're going to discuss God's design, his beautiful design for marriage. So please join me as we open in a word of prayer. Father, I am so grateful for your word. And whenever I begin a message, Father, I am, I'm, I'm reminded, I'm so taken by the words you spoke through the psalmist that said, unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain. And, and Father, there's been, there's been a lot of labor here this morning, the, the music and the setup team and the tech team and, and my preparation. And, and Father, this is all in vain if you're not here. And so we cry out to you, Father, because I love my brothers and sisters here at Rock Hills, and, and I know there's marriages here. Inevitably, in a, in a group this size, there's marriages that are struggling, that are, that are, that are in pain, that are, that are trying to find their way. And, and Father, would you come build the house of marriage? Would you build encouragement and strength and commitment in the marriages at Rock Hills? And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. And, and so as we look at God's beautiful design, his design for marriage, we need to remember that this is the fifth in our series called The Beautiful Design. I think it's important to sort of review those things because they tend to, to uh, build on one another. So if you've missed any of those first five messages, just go to the Rock Hills website. You can click on, on the icon and, and listen to the message, or better yet, go subscribe to the podcast. Those, those messages will get automatically downloaded to your phone, and you can listen to it in the car or wherever else it's convenient. But the first message that, that Pastor Dave taught was called Imago Dei, the image of God. And this is the profound reality that above all other creatures, there is one creature in all reality that's made in the image of God, and that is mankind, men and women. And this has profound implications, folks. 
First of all, that means that our worth, our, our standing before God has, has no monetary way to, to, to value it, okay? And, and let me give you a simple example. Let, let's say the budget in the Hassler household, is, is, say we're over budget. We need to cut somewhere. Now, many of you know, in our household, there's me, there's Jan, there's Scout, and there's Smudge, our two dogs. Let me tell you what is not going to go through my mind. I'm not going to look at the budget and say, okay, well, let's see. Scout costs this much. Smudge costs this much. Jan, whoa, look what she costs. Man, I know where I'm cutting. She's gone, okay? I'm sorry, that's not happening, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of a silly example, but my point is there is no way to measure the value of a human being in monetary terms. The, the, the most... The, the most profoundly disabled human being, wherever they may be, is far more valuable than, than the, the thoroughbred secretariat, which won the triple crown and was syndicated for $50 million. And, and so we don't measure human value in a monetary way because we're in the image of God. And the other thing is that despite what certain groups say, we are more valuable than any animal God has given us the authority, the ruling authority over all the creatures of the earth. We are more valuable than any animal, and we don't judge our worth or our value on functionality. Now, now Scout is a hunting dog. He, uh, Jan trained him. He was one of the top hunting dogs in, in the, all the state of Texas when she, was, when she was doing the competitions. And when we lived in Houston, for 20 years we lived next door to a wonderful couple that became great friends of ours, and they had a daughter. And their daughter was profoundly autistic. Hannah was dysfunctional in every way. She was never going to be able to function on her own and perform any functions at all. So if you were measuring the functionality of Scout and and his performance and productivity and the functionality and performance of Hannah, there would be no comparison. Scout is far more productive and his performance is far far higher based upon his, his species. But if I was in a boat and that boat capsized and Hannah and Scout were there and I could only save one of them, as much as I love Scout, I'm going to save Hannah because there is no comparison in their worth because she is created in the image of God. And, and the last and, and important implication of being created in the image of God What that means is each and every human being has infinite value because God created you. So it doesn't matter if your skin is white or brown or black or yellow or red. You are infinitely valuable. And that is why racism in any shape or form is such a profound evil. It dishonors God in the the most awful ways. And so those are the implications from the Imago Dei. The, the second message was about God's design for a woman. And what we found in God's design for a woman is this amazing truth that God created both men and women. This is stated in Genesis. God created both men and women in his own image. Men and women, he created them. And Paul wrote in, in the first century uh, A.D., He was writing to the church at Galatia, and he said this in in Galatians 3. He said, folks, for this reason, there's no longer Greek or Jew, 
slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Christ. This is the most radically diverse sentence ever written. This is still untrue all over the world, isn't it? The Christian worldview, the Christian faith, Christian communities are the most radically diverse communities in the world. And we alone stand for the idea that no matter who you are, male, female, what race, you know, what your socioeconomic status is, how wealthy, how poor you are, you are one, we are all one in Christ. What an amazing implication of the design of women. And the design of men, what we found, is though God equally loves, values, respects men and women, he has made them in complementary roles. And we see that even in biology. Women bear children. Men don't. So even though God equally loves men and women, equally values us, equally respects us, we're equal in every way, we have complementary roles. And as we study the role of a man, we talked about the verse in Ephesians where it says, as man should love his wife, as Christ loved the church, being willing to lay down his life for her. And what we talked about, if you remember, is that it, when, in those important moments, in those moments of crisis, the man goes down and the woman walks away. We lay down our life for our wives and for the women. And that is God's, one of many God's designs for manhood. And so each and every one of these messages has numerous implications. And I've just gone through some of them. And then last week, Stephen taught a message on community and on friendship. And what he taught from the scripture is that we are all designed with a need for community. There's, there's something important about a community of faith to live out fully our lives. We need friendship. We need community. And it's an important part of who we are in God's design for us. And so that brings us to God's design for marriage today. And the first implication I want to talk about, the first part of God's design for marriage, is he says, no one can get divorced. Now, now listen, God does not force anyone to get divorced, does he? Any of you, or excuse me, not, does not force anyone to get married, does he? There, if there's anyone here who's married, it wasn't because God forced you into it. You made the decision, and God says, but I have a rule. If you choose to get married, you don't divorce. There is one exception. It's for adultery. Jesus talked about that. But I want, I want to make it clear that just because one spouse or the other commits adultery, that doesn't mean you have to get divorced or even that you should get divorced. In fact, the scripture has a lot to say about forgiveness and trying to get past that kind of thing. But that is the one exception to God's instruction, to his command, that he does not allow divorce. Now, even as I say that, I know those words are going to fall quite hard on some of you who, are, who may be struggling in your marriage. So, so it's really important that you know a little bit about my story. I know a lot of you do, but it's really important that you know where I'm coming from when I say those words. You see, I did not grow up in a Christian home. My dad was an atheist. When I asked him if there was a God, he said, no, I became an atheist. I rocked through life chasing the gods of this world. At the age of 21, I got married. A few years after that, I left that marriage. I divorced my wife. That was an act of cowardice and an act of selfishness. I was doing the Hillary Duff thing. I was no longer happy, and I was more committed to my happiness than I was to those marriage vows. 
and I, and I continued on in life, and, and I met Jan. And, and we started dating, and I had sworn I was never going to get married again. I wasn't going to make that same mistake twice. So I convinced her to live with me, despite uh, the fact that she didn't really want to do that. And, and, and then we had this very dysfunctional relationship. We'd break up, and we'd get back together. It, it, was, it was just not good. And at one point, when we were broken up. I heard through the grapevine that she was dating someone, so I asked her to marry me. That's how healthy we were, okay? Well, it probably doesn't surprise you that four years later, I walked out of that marriage. I said, Jan, it's over. I'm not happy. I'm going to divorce you. She, for whatever reason, decided to go back to church. I heard about that. I went on a spiritual journey, and and for several months... I began to read C.S. Lewis and many other authors, and, and I started reluctantly going to church and, and, and reading the Bible and doing other things. And, and after several months, I made the decision to put my faith in Jesus, to, to accept this gift that he had, had offered me for eternal life and, and a res- restoration of my relationship with God. And so I moved back in. But I want to tell you something. I still did not love Jan. I wrestled with this idea, and I'd cry out to God, surely you don't want me to remain married for life to someone I don't love. I don't, I don't have any feeling. You're not a, I know you're not a cruel God. How could, you, how could you order me to do this? And I'm so grateful that for a lot of different reasons, we'll talk about it a little bit later, I decided to stay with Jan, and I started to, started to apply the principles that God has in his design for marriage. And it gives me such joy to say that eight days from today, a week from tomorrow, Jan and I will be celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary. Yeah. I, I didn't expect to choke up right there. Trust me. Um, Yes, what an amazing woman to stay with me for 30 years. I agree with that. But I can honestly say, we now have a marriage that is so rich, so deep, so passionate, so so united that I would wish it for all of you. And so the question is, how do you get to that point? And the answer is by applying the principles in this book, God's design for a marriage. And so the first principle we've already talked about. Don't divorce. That's an important one, folks. There's something about staying in the battle that is so critical. The second uh, principle that I want to talk about today, I think we have a verse that describes this. It's It's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And from this verse, we find an amazing reality that each of us, each and every one of us has been created with needs. Here's what God says. And and the setting for this, by the way, is it's during the creation. God is creating heavens and earth and plants and animals, and everything is good. Every step of the way, everything is good. And God creates man, and this is before the fall, before sin has entered the world. And God looks around, and he says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now think about, just think about the implications of this verse for a minute. The God of the universe is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. It means he can do anything. He could have created Adam without need for anyone else. 
my logic would say that would be a good thing because throughout the scripture, it continually says that the most beautiful thing you can experience is God, the wisest thing you can experience is God, the most pleasurable thing you can experience is God, the most holy and right and true and just thing you can experience is God. It would seem like God would say, I'm going to make you without a need for anybody so you can focus on me. But that isn't what God does. He creates Adam with a need for someone else, and all of us have been created with needs. And 2 Corinthians 1.3 says... I am the God of all comfort, and I will comfort you so that you can comfort other people. Now, again, think about that. God is all-powerful. He's infinite. He could, at the same time, comfort every single person in the world. And what he says is, no, I'm going to comfort you so that you can comfort others. And, And as you reflect on those things, I think we begin to get the idea that God has a reason for this. You see, from everlasting to everlasting, God is in perfect community. Our faith teaches us that he's a triune God. That means he's three people in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's in perfect community himself. He knows the blessing of giving to others and being part of another person's life. And I think he wants to involve us in that and experience what that is like. And so he creates us with needs, and then he chooses to involve us in meeting those needs. And I I hope you start to see the implications here, because the world says this. The world says, oh, he's needy, she's needy. And we understand when we hear that, that's an insult, right? When you hear that around the, the water cooler at work, oh, that person's so needy. You know, we take that as an insult. And I, I know that's what I thought when we first got back together. It's like... <laughs> Oh, Lord. I mean, you've got me with this needy woman. I mean, she needs to, like, talk. She needs to, like, spend time with me. She, she needs, like, me to hold her sometimes. And it's like, I have no needs. I'm strong. I'm independent. Well, maybe sex a few times a week. But other than that, I have no needs at all, right? And that's the way I think most men think. But as I began to examine myself, I realized that was a lie. Because what was going on is if I needed, the, if I needed some affirmation, I, I might start flirting with a court reporter or one of the legal assistants. When I needed approval or respect, I'd, I'd work extra hard to, to please my bosses or, or to achieve you know, becoming a big shot in the, in the Houston Bar Association or whatever it took. I was getting my needs met. I had needs, but I was getting them met inappropriately. And so this idea that you may have that you are not needy, it's a lie, folks. And one of the beautiful designs that God has for us in marriage is that over years we can begin to learn what our spouse's needs are and begin to sense when you can come alongside them and meet those needs. And and I'm so grateful. Like Roy said earlier, I have an amazing wife. She she now has the ability to to understand when when maybe I'm feeling a little fearful about my business and and about income and and cash flows, and and she'll she'll give me courage and strength. And and maybe when I'm feeling discouraged, she'll encourage me. And maybe when I'm I'm feeling lonely, she'll come alongside of of me and hold me. And, And over time, what we've begun to realize is when you admit your need, it is such a blessing for your wife or your husband to come alongside and meet those needs. Now, I have to say just a brief word. If you're in a relationship where you believe your spouse is not meeting those needs, 
there's a, there's a verse, and, and again, I didn't make a slide. I, my apologies. It's, it's Philippians 4.19. Make a note of that. And it says, My God shall meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4.19. My God shall meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And what that means is this. I believe that in a good marriage, God's perfect design is for your spouse to come alongside and God, who is the one responsible for meeting needs, according to that verse, he will come alongside and use your spouse most often to meet those needs. But where the perfect is absent, God's grace will fill in. And if you have a spouse that's not meeting those needs, or you're single, then you can look to that verse. And my God shall meet all my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. But what a wonderful dynamic that comes in a marriage when you can begin to walk in this truth that we are created with needs and our spouse will come alongside and fulfill them. And, and, and the reason, one of the many reasons why that is a beautiful design, just like our series says, is because God also created into the fabric of this universe, it is more blessed to give than receive. We all know that. That's true. We've all experienced that. And so guess what? The fact that God has given me a woman with needs is ultimately a blessing to me. Because I, I, over the years, I've found true joy and trying to do my best to lay down my life and meet Jan's needs and get the blessing of giving to her. And so that's the first principle. The first part of God's design for marriage is we are created with needs. That's the second principle. The third principle I get out of a famous passage that I think we're all, we all know, and it's a famous love passage. And it's Corinthians 13. And, he, and here's what Paul says. 13.4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It makes no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. What a beautiful description. And I think what you see there is that you don't see one word about, you know what love is? It's me saying to Jan, just that right word of advice about how to be a better wife. <laughs> doesn't say that, does it? doesn't say, I need to criticize her for the way she's falling short. It doesn't say that I'm going to nag her so that she steps up her, her efforts as a wife. It doesn't say any of those things, does it? You know, any of you been married, have, have you noticed that uh, advice, criticism and, criticism and nagging, that's, that's not working too well, is it? How, how's that working for you? <laughs> not too well, right? What it says is you become a better person and your spouse will become a better person. There, there's this amazing dynamic. If you want to have a better spouse, be a better spouse. So that's the, that's the, the next principle I want to talk about. So here's, here's what's going on now in our marriage. When I have that thought, doesn't happen very often. I'm sure it happens a lot more often in Jan's mind. Oh, man, if only he'd do this as a husband. We don't even talk about that. What we do is we turn it on ourselves and say, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, when that thought enters my mind, I need to say something to Jan, something to Jan about being better at such and such. 
When that thought in my mind, I say, no. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to commit to be a better husband. And, you know, we all know this principle is true throughout the world because we see it so strongly in the area of friends. If you're a parent here and you have children, I have no doubt in my mind that you are concerned with the friends they're hanging around with, aren't you? You understand that there's a principle woven into the fabric of the universe that who you hang around with has a big impact on the person you become. And the scripture even says that. Stephen talked about it last week in, in talking about friendship. It's in Corinthians 15. It says, bad company corrupts good morals. We understand that dynamic. It's inevitable. If your kids are hanging around with a really bad crowd and he's spending a lot of time with them, that can't help but have a negative influence. But it also works the other way. And I saw this in an amazing way in my life. There was a, a guy that I met on a golf course, started sharing my faith, uh, he ultimately became a Christian, started coming to Rock Hills. And it turns out he was a substance abuser. And some of you may remember Keith. He was here long ago. And, and I began to, to notice that he'd relapse. And he'd be telling me about the guys he was hanging around with. I said, Keith, man, you, you need to get better friends. And he'd said to me, he said, Al, I don't have any good friends. How, how do I get good friends? He said, would you be my friend? I said, okay, I'll start hanging around. Let's start hanging out and being friends. So, you know, we started going to lunch, and then one, one time we set up a lunch, and he just totally stood me up, never called nothing. And then a, a few weeks later, he was late on his rent, and I loaned him a couple hundred bucks for, for rent, and he was going to pay me back $20 a week. Lasted about a week, and then he stopped paying me back. I called his sister once when he was, when he was sort of had disappeared and drop off, dropped off the face of the earth. And I said, have you heard from Keith? And we started talking. And she said, you know, he's been really critical of you. You know, the fact you won't give him more money and, and things like that. And so here's a guy. He's standing me up and, and not showing up at appointments. He's borrowing money and not paying me back. He's slandering me and gossiping about me behind my back. Now, why doesn't Keith have good friends? Because he's not a good friend, okay? And, and, and so as I began to continue to spend time with him and model what friendship really looked like, Keith finally kicked the habits. He, he, came, he got clean, and, and I'm so grateful that, to say that Keith is now living. He moved back to Vegas where his family was, and he's being a father to his children. He's been clean now for, for over a year. But that's the power of friendship. And we all understand if you want to have a better friend, you need to be a better friend. And what I'm saying to you is you have that same dynamic in a, in a relationship. And I, I know the temptation. It's like, well, they're not being good to me. Why should I be good to him or her? And, and you know, I have my daughter and my son-in-law come, come to church here. And what if my daughter came up to me and said, you know, Dad, Mike's not treating me very well lately. I'm, you know, I'm going to do the same thing to him. I'm not going to treat him well in return. First of all, I don't think she'd ever do that because that's not her heart, but that would break my heart as a parent. I would hope that she would just say, you know, I don't care how, what he's doing. I'm going to be a good wife. Yet, I tend to do that same thing. You know, somewhere subconsciously, when I, if I don't think Jan's treating me right, it's like, well, I'm not going to treat her right then. Let's rise above that because that's God's beautiful design. If you want to have a better spouse, be a better spouse. And the, the last principle I want to talk about and what I see here is this idea that love will not sustain commitment, 
but commitment will sustain love. And where I see that again is in this Corinthians passage. Let's look at the very end of it, uh, verse 7 and 8, if we have that. And it says this, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always, what's that word? Perseveres. Love never fails. And what Paul is saying here, if you persevere in your marriage, if you persevere living out all these qualities, guess what? Love never, what? Fails. That, that's an eye-opening truth, folks. And what it is really saying is, if you will simply live out these truths, if you will be this kind of person who always loves, always patient, always kind, something dramatic will happen. And here's what will happen. You know, people look at, people like Hilary Duff, look at people who've been married 50, 60 years, and they go, oh, isn't that wonderful? They were so lucky. They have a love that sustained their commitment to one another for 50 or 60 years. I hope I find someone like that that I can be in love with for 50 or 60 years. Trust me, folks, there are many days where Jan and I do not love each other, okay? It's just the truth. I'm sure there's, she has more days about me than I do about her, okay? Um, but that's just what happens in a long-term marriage. And, and the question is, what do you do on those days? And the answer is, is you recommit through your actions and your words. So even after an argument or a fight, it will not be uncommon for Jan to come to me or me to come to her and say, hey, hey babe, no matter what happens, I don't care what happens. Until I take my last breath, I am with you, and I will never, ever stop trying to be a better husband. And you know, even as I say those words, even right now, you know what wells up inside me? Joy and, and satisfaction and love. And, and when, I, when I live out that commitment, love is renewed. This, these, these positive feelings of love and satisfaction and joy well up inside you. And so what you begin to see is love can never stay in commitment. It just won't happen. Hillary Duff is right. But commitment is a promise from God, commitment can and will sustain the feeling of love. And that is a remarkable, important truth for you to understand about God's design for marriage. Now, I want to go back to that time, that dark time, when I was living at home. I had accepted Christ. I was living as a Christ follower. But I was wrestling with God. I really wanted to leave because those, those times for both Jan and I, they were very dark. They were very painful. They were, they were difficult times. And I really was at a crossroads in my life. Am I going to trust, am I going to trust God? Am I going to stay married? It was right about that time I went out of town. I was working on a case in another city. I was just gone for a day or two. I was on my way back on the plane, and I was sitting next to this guy, and I never talk to guys on the plane, okay? But for some reason, I struck up a conversation with this guy. His name was Jason. I still remember talking to Jason. And somehow, he found out I was a personal injury lawyer, and we started talking about how accidents and tragedy are, are such milestones in your life. And I began to share with him that not too long 
before that, a few years before that, I'd lost my sister who was killed by an 18-wheeler. And he began to share how his wife, Lori, had several years earlier had been involved in a horrible accident and got burned badly. And they'd been married for 15 years, and despite the burns and despite what they've been through, they were happier now 15 years into their marriage than they had been at the beginning. And I remember being jealous and just thinking, how can that happen? And we finished our conversation, and you know, I'm getting off the plane. I grab my, my carry-on luggage, and I'm sort of sprinting off the plane to get home and, and you know, get, get out to, you know, into the concourse and looking at people, and my eye catches a pretty attractive woman. And then all of a sudden I realize she's got this horrible burn on her face, and I just remember thinking, oh, poor thing. That's got to be hard to look at every day. And then it clicked. I, I wonder if that's Lori, Jason's wife, that, that I was just talking to. And so I sort of slowed down and look over my shoulder, and sure enough, Jason was making a beeline for his wife, Lori. And, and he had two kids, and he started greeting them. And remember, this guy's been married 15 years, and then all of a sudden, you know, they, their eyes kind of lock, and, and they just look at each other with these goo-goo eyes. And, and then he gives her this passionate kiss. And, and, you know, I'm a little bit of a cynical guy now, but back then I was really cynical. I'm like, dude... You've been away two days, not two years. Come on, get a room, you know? But there was something about that that drew me. And and so I walk over, and I said, hi, Jason, again, and I introduced myself to Lori. And I said, I just want you to know that I was sitting next to your husband on the plane, and he had such amazing and wonderful things to say about you, and he is so in love. And she smiled and thanked me, and, and then I looked at them both, and I said, you know, I don't know if my marriage is going to make it to 15 years, but if it does, I sure hope that we have as much love and passion as you two have. Jason looked me right in the eye and he said, Al, don't hope, decide. And that's what I want to tell everybody here today if you're married. Don't hope that you're going to have a marriage like Jan and I 30 years from now decide. And so I walked out of the, out of the concourse and started going to my car, and, and I was still wrestling. And God brought to mind the gospel. And the reason I bring up the gospel is because we've, we've been talking about God's beautiful design and the most important design, the deepest reality of this universe is what we call the gospel. And we talk about that a lot here at Rock Hills because if we're going to talk about the design that God has planned, the ultimate design, the truest design is the design of the gospel. And what the gospel says is simply this. It's good news. But good news has to begin with bad news, doesn't it? And the bad news is that long ago, in this perfect place, men and women rebelled against God We had this catastrophic breach. We violated a perfectly holy, perfectly just God. And because of that violation, we owed a debt. We had punishment coming our way. And because of God's very nature, he couldn't just brush that under the rug. He couldn't just say, oh, you've sinned, you've murdered, don't worry about it. I'll just just close my eyes to that. I'll let it go. That's against his nature. The debt had to be paid. The punishment had to be meted out. But God's nature is also love. And so he came to to earth. God came to earth in the form of Jesus. He lived the perfect life 
that we couldn't live. He died the death on the cross, accepting our punishment. He paid the debt that we couldn't pay. And three days later, he rose again to a newer, more beautiful life. But you know what happened the night before his crucifixion? He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that event. He, he was so distraught, he was sweating blood. He was crying out to God. He, it was a dark time. It was a painful time. It was a difficult time. It felt hopeless to him. But what did he do? He decided to go to the cross. And on my way home that night, I decided I was going to lay down my life in pursuit of this crazy dream called marriage. And as I did, I began to live out God's design for marriage. He does what he always does in the fabric of this universe. He took a life laid down and he resurrected our marriage. He resurrected our love and he brought us back to life with a newer, more beautiful love. Folks, that's God's beautiful design for marriage. 